Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover Christine, chapters 35 through 42. Let's start the show. Buddy Repperton and a couple of his cronies meet their fate when Christine follows them after a basketball game. Will Darnell starts to wonder about Arnie and Christine. Arnie continues to lose track of time, but then realizes how he hurt his back. Junkins questions Arnie again and comes away with a different view on him. The cops and feds raid Darnell's and arrest Arnie. Rather than turn on Darnell, Arnie keeps his mouth shut and feels that things will work out for him. He might be proven right when Christine kills Darnell in his own home. I gotta say, Sean, Darnell is turning out to be a pretty cool character. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we, we won't get to hang out with him anymore. But yes, he is a pretty cool character uh, until he meets his fate here at the end. But yeah, I, you know, for a character who's presented in the first third of the novel, which is from Dennis Gilder's point of view in all first person, mm-hmm. we get this idea that Darnell's this low-level crook who might be involved in some bad stuff, and he seems like he's a, a bully of sorts. And I mean, none of that information is incorrect. No, none of it's incorrect, but it's very one-sided, I think. And, you know, yeah. Dennis's father says, ah, stay away from that guy. He's, he's up to no good. And yeah, yeah, that's true. But in this section, we get, because it's third person, we get to see Darnell in a new light uh, and get a little bit more of his perspective. And he's a much more rounded character, not just because he's overweight, but because he has different... Oh, man. You're worse than King. <laughs> King's the one who says, who, who does it. Like He has a tendency to, to make his bad characters either ugly or have some other physical characteristic that's not great. But we get into Darnell's head which is really the key point here is that we get to see how Darnell thinks and learn how he became his own little crime lord of at least one little suburb in Pittsburgh. Yeah, we really do have to thank King for making the switch to the third person narration here because without it, we could never get inside Darnell's head, know what he thinks, know how he feels. And as you said, learn about his background and, and past. It doesn't exactly make him a sympathetic character, no. but we realize that he has been a very crafty and intelligent agent within this small town of Libertyville for his entire life. And he has like a fondness for, for Arnie that we would never truly grasp without this third person perspective. So we can see that he is more human than just the one-dimensional bad actor that Dennis and Dennis's father say that he is. Mm -hmm. I also like the fact that he is a very thoughtful person. He tries to put all these pieces together that he sees and figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't actually see Arnie actually working on the cars, just on the little things, but yet all this major stuff happens with Christine and the odometer runs backwards and I've been around cars for 50 years, and I've never seen that happen before. And all these little things that he says, okay, what does all this mean, though? 
Yeah. And he says he fixed it up like magic. And then when he does that, he he sort of is like, well, what does that mean exactly? And even though he has never seen magic and he might not believe in it, King writes, Darnell was willing to acknowledge that there were strange things in the world. He put stuff like that in an open file because nothing inexplicable had ever happened to him. So he's very open-minded, even though he might not believe in it. Yeah. Almost philosophical. Yeah. Like, well, just because I've never seen a ghost and never been haunted, that doesn't mean that there aren't ghosts because weird things happen to people. And maybe this is one of those times. And he wants to find out, am I onto something? You know, he checks up to see, is Arnie really in Philadelphia at the chess tournament? Mm -hmm. And when he does, he's like, okay, well, who would take his car out? There's only one set of keys. Nobody else is driving it. Like he's starting to put all these things together. Yeah. I think it's really important that we get this background on Darnell before he exits stage left of the story <laughs> here. Because as I mentioned a, a moment ago, we learn that he actually does care for Arnie. Mm. He sort of like sees him in this sort of, uh, like, he's, like he's his own kid almost. Darnell, I guess, doesn't have his own kids and never had his own family really. So Arnie's come into his life. He finally has somebody who can sort of occupy that role and he's smart and he's crafty and he can move and shake in ways that allow Darnell to give him a, a lot of trust. But because we can know his thoughts in this section, we still know that Darnell is willing to use and ultimately betray Arnie if it suits Darnell's needs. Yes. And you know, if you get caught holding that bag, it's your bag. And he's already made that decision with himself. Like, if Arnie goes down, I'm letting him go down. I'm not going to protect him in any way. Little does he know that Arnie has someone protecting him. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned earlier how Darnell has this sort of philosophical look on inexplicable events. And you also mentioned how he doesn't have a family. And one of the things that also, we also learned about Darnell is that Wanda was one of only four girls, not whores, that Darnell has fucked. And Wanda was surely the only one he had ever loved always assuming there was such a thing. And like the supernatural events he had sometimes heard about but never witnessed, he could doubt its existence but not disprove it. Talking about love. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another just sort of a great line and a great insight into Darnell. Like, uh, maybe there's such a thing as love and there's four girls that I had loved uh, beyond, you know, the people I'm paying money for. But is it really love? I don't know. But I'll put it into a file and that made me think of the X-Files as well, right? I'm going to put yeah. it into an open file. He's like the scully in the relationship i guess sure well, it's interesting how darnell's view on love is that he's not sure it, it exists but he can't disprove it whereas george lebay says that love eats friendship mm, yep so we're getting all of these different perspectives on the emotion of love and how it can affect the people who are in it and who are around the people who are in it it can be destructive it can it can hurt you as much as it can feel good. And people like Darnell have only had, they've only had glancing connections to love in their life. It looks like Arnie has gotten into a place where his love of Christine is destroying him from the inside out. And as we've also seen, Dennis and Lee are starting to sort of circle around each other in ways that love could perhaps be detrimental to them as well. So there's a lot of darkness connected to love so far in this book. I don't know if there will ever be a, a positive side of love that we see in this book, but we'll find out. 
Well, remember in the prologue, Dennis states that this is a love triangle story and that ultimately that's what this story is going to be about. So having that be the premise that this is some sort of love story is at least a, a good starting point and probably a good segue into our next section, which is on character motivations. And a lot of that is around love and feelings. And a lot of this is Lee, despite in our last section, Lee breaking up with Arnie and us thinking that it's totally over. It still seems like she has feelings for him and is open to them getting back together as long as he gets rid of Christine, mm -hmm. which he's unwilling to do. But she's willing to make that attempt again still. Yeah, I guess this is another parallel to drug addiction. Like we've spoken about in the past, every work of fiction that I've seen that has characters who love a drug addict they don't stop loving that addict but they know that being around the addict is one of the worst experiences that they could put themselves through so they are constantly torn between their love for that addict and wanting to be with them and help them and support them and avoiding all of the pain and suffering that comes from being around somebody who is ultimately being completely self-destructive and Arnie is that drug addict. He's acting like he's addicted to Christine. And Lee doesn't have a problem with Arnie. She wants to be with him, but she wants him to stop taking his drug. And he refuses that flat out. Mm -hmm. So that ends their relationship. But it doesn't immediately sever her feelings. No, no. And so when Arnie makes that attempt to call Lee, and, and at first he's blocked by Lee's mom, mm -hmm. Lee gets the phone away from her and she's like, no, no, I'll talk to him. And even though Lee's mom would probably, is, you could t just sort of imagine her with her arms crossed staring at Lee. Why are you talking to that boy? He's, he's bad for you. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's understandable. I, I know I've been in periods of my life when I've had a friend or a, a relative who's dating somebody who I can clearly see is bad for them. And even if you have the right opportunity to, to say so, they don't want to hear it. No. They don't listen. They need to make up their own minds on that. Yep. Yep. So we understand Lee's motivations, at least at this part of the story, is like she wants Arnie to do the right thing, even if he's unwilling to and, and break up with Christine. But let's talk about some of the other characters. There's Christine, who in this section specifically seems to show her potential love for Arnie by getting revenge on the people who, who hurt her, running over Buddy Repperton and and his cronies, as well as uh, potentially solving his legal problems by getting rid of Darnell. So that's a kind of love. Yes, Jay? Uh, <laughs> it's a kind. <laughs> um, I think it's a cult-like kind of love. Oh. It's Christine. And, and we are, not only are we referring to this inanimate object as a person, we are actually elevating this, this demon car to a character, which I'm okay with. I like talking about stories where like a city is a character or the landscape is a character or things like that. A sword. Or a sword. Yes. There you go. Um, so why can't Christine uh, 58 Plymouth be a character? She definitely seems to have a mind of her own and motivations of her own and can act on her own. But I said cult like because one of the driving forces of a cult or what sets cults aside from other types of organizations is that they are exclusionary. They want to isolate the cult members from the rest of that cult member's life mm. because only in doing so can they truly control that person. They need to convince them you shouldn't speak to your parents or your siblings or your extended family or your friends because 
everything that they tell you is wrong. And mostly because what they're telling you is get out of the cult. <laughs> yes. Right? If you can remove those warnings from people who care, then there's a lot less chance of the person leaving the cult. Christine is eliminating not just the threats to Arnie, but the threats to her connection to Arnie. Yeah. She's trying to form a cult of two. Just Arnie and Christine out on the open road, no one else. No Lee, no Dennis, no Darnell, no cops, no bullies, no Arnie's parents, just Christine and Arnie. Yep. We also have Arnie who we see him going through a lot of changes in this section. You know, the last section ended with him being like, to hell with all the shitters, to hell with Lee. It's, I'll go off on my own. But then he seems to, to question that in this section. And it seems like Arnie's motivation here is that he wants to be loved in some way. Mm -hmm. He thinks that that love is between him and Christine. He feels it specifically when he has an actual physical connection to her. And yeah. it, it, it gets a little bit different when he's away from her. And he's trying to search through his memories to figure out what's going on. But it is very deep and very complex in this section. We talked again about the addiction, but this sounds like a person who's struggling. He loved her and loathed her. He hated her and cherished her. He needed her and needed to run from her. She was his and he was hers. This is someone who, who wants that love but realizes it's probably not good for him. Arnie also thinks about how Christine would never argue or complain. He was convinced that she loved him. She had been sitting there waiting for the right buyer, one who would love her for herself alone. It feels like Arnie is trying to convince himself, trying really hard to convince himself that the love that he feels for Christine is real. But I think deep, deep down, he knows this is not true. You can't really love or be loved by a car. No, no, obviously not. <laughs> But Arnie doesn't get that, right? And he has this weird vision of getting married to Christine. Mm -hmm. And LeBay is there officiating and Buddy Repperton and the other kids who have been killed are there in the, in the seats. And all of that is just puzzling to Arnie, but he can't pull himself away from her either. So I mentioned LeBay and he's the other character who takes up a lot of this section, Jay. He's still in the story, despite the fact that he died in the first section that we read. And he seems to be playing an important part here, showing up in visions that Arnie has, showing up in front of Buddy Repperton, mm -hmm. and, and seeming to be present at a lot of events when he probably shouldn't be. And I'm having a hard time understanding why he's still around and why he's part of the story and what his motivations are exactly. Yeah, this is something that you and I keep coming back to, and I'm not sure where King's going with it. I think we talked about this in the last episode. Uh, part of a line that references what you just talked about is that when Buddy Repertin is about to meet his end, he sees a rotting corpse standing there in green pants and, and white bone gleamed through the skin stretched across its face. And he said, that's it for you, you shitter. It, yeah, what is going on here? Why is LeBay appearing and why is he even separate from Christine? Like I, I could almost buy into that LeBay somehow haunts Christine, that his connection to Christine was so utterly complete that even though he died, there's sort of like a, an echo of him connected to the car. 
but it doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like Christine is a haunted car, and LeBay is a ghost, and they still like to just cruise around together and get revenge on all the shitters. Also, Arnie's connected to Christine and being like, I don't know, consumed somehow by Christine's energy. So I, I just feel like there are too many layers to this onion. That's why I keep asking, what is King doing here? What's he working towards? I'm struggling with it. It seems overly complex. I think it would have been neater if it was one or the other. Either it's, it's LeBay's ghost doing this via the car, or it's the car and LeBay's not there. But because both seem to be true, it makes it feel messy. Yeah, in the first section, I almost got a sense like Christine was like a monkey paw, right? And if you were the mm. owner and possessor of it, you were the one who was cursed. Yeah. But once you got rid of it, you were rid of it. And and LeBay seems almost happy to get rid of it, right? Like at, at first he questions whether or not Arnie's got the money, but ultimately once those papers are signed, it's like, ha ha, your problem. And then LeBay shuffles off this mortal coil and we get the sense that, okay, he was connected in some way. And now that Christine's gone, he can die happy or at least uncursed or moved on. Mm -hmm. But he hasn't moved on at all. He's he's still sort of stuck here. And it's not clear like why Repertin cares that like, okay, this car's about to run me over. I can understand like the car's got this thing for me because I beat up the car. But wait, who's this old guy? And what does he have to do with my death? Like, I'd be like, wait a minute, who, who, what, what's going on? So I agree with you. I think that it's not super clear and there would probably be a way of condensing this and making it clear. But you would think either LeBay doesn't care about these specific shitters. Like, wouldn't he have his whole, a whole other set of shitters that he wants to go off and get? Like, why, yeah. why bother with these teens? Like, they didn't do anything to him. Um, it'd be different if, like, Repertin had egged his house or, you know, put a flaming bag of shit on his porch or something and then rang the doorbell. But, like, he has no connection with these guys, and yet he seems gleeful that he's killing these kids, or Christine is. Yeah, sometimes when I ask questions like this that basically obviate the reason for the story, if Christine is parked in the airport parking lot, waiting and vulnerable to Buddy Repertin and, and his gang, she has already demonstrated that she can like magically repair herself. Right. And drive without a, a human behind the wheel. So why wouldn't she actively defend herself in that moment? Why not just run all these idiots down in the parking lot? Instead, she lets herself be destroyed and towed and then pretends to be repaired slowly over time. If the book didn't have that scene, we wouldn't have this reason for the revenge right. and all the revenge killings that are fun and exciting. But it doesn't make sense on its face if Christine could have killed them at any time. Yeah. As soon as the first uh, window is broken, it's like, all right, you're all dead. You know, that could have been fun. You know, <laughs> let's have Christine get but like random people keep trying to break into her or whatever, and they pay a price. In their <laughs> it's like Kit, Knight Rider. Yeah. <laughs> Just like the, the the evil version of Kit. Cat. It had a name. Oh, there was an evil. It was Car. Car. Right? Yeah, K-A-R-R, -R, right? Yeah. Oh, that brings back memories. So we get this like line with Arnie feeling like he... So on the one hand, he sees the LeBay ghost and is riding shotgun with him. Mm -hmm. But then also it seemed clear and clear to him that Roland D. LeBay was either with him or hovering someplace near. He was perhaps coalescing inside him. This idea did not frighten Arnie. It comforted him. So that same connection that he has with Christine that comforts him 
he's getting it also from Roland, mm. which like we've been saying, we'll have to see if this plays out anymore in the next section, but it's not quite working for us right now. All right, Jay, still a good section of the book. I mean, I, I'm flying through the pages. I'm, I'm loving reading it and, and interested in seeing what happens. I'm also wondering if there's any Dark Tower thinnies in this section. I think I have one that's kind of a thinny. Okay. <laughs> Bear with me here. <laughs> so this is a stretch, I, I admit it, but the very beginning of this section begins with an interlude, and it reminds me in two ways of the section in Wizard and Glass called Beneath the Huntress Moon. Mm. In one way, it's the direct interlude style. Um, in Wizard and Glass, we get this sort of sweeping narrative of what's going on and we're sort of taking a, a pause in the overall plot to just catch up on the comings and goings of the town and just sort of get a general sense of what's happening and the section of christine is just like that um the line that king begins this with is it was a cesura a lull an interlude a period of quiet during his seemingly endless walks up and down the hospital corridors dennis reflected that things could be worse much, much worse. Before long, they were. Mm. So the point being that we get this writing style and an omniscient narrator again that feels a little bit different than what has come before and what comes right after. So in style and structure and function, very much like Beneath the Huntress Moon in Wizard and Glass. So that's what I'm calling a thinny. Uh, I'll give it to you just because I don't have a real Dark Tower thinny here, so the fact that you were able to make a connection to an actual Dark Tower book, kudos to you, my friend. All right. The only thing I've got is that Buddy and his crew, when they cruise off after the basketball game, decide to go to a, a state park to do their drinking and driving. and As you do. As you do in the 70s. And they decide to go to the state park that has a lake. I think that's the big draw of this park. And this park is closed between November and April to the public, but Buddy knows like a access road to get in. And this sounds an awful lot like the park that the characters in the raft go to, which is also set in the Pittsburgh area. Those characters go to Horlicks University, which is also where Arnie's parents teach. Mm -hmm. And they go to a park with a lake that's closed to the public and bad, bad things happen to them and bad things happen to Buddy. I'll allow it. It doesn't directly connect to the Dark Tower, but man, there's so much overlap between what you just talked about and the raft that those connections just can't be accidental. Yeah. And I'll chalk those up as uh, being, uh, you know, influence of the Dark Tower itself. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's time for one of our favorite segments, Yucking It Up. Blah. Why don't you kick us off on that one? All right. I'm going to call mine the Van Gogh. And that's because uh, when Christine smashes into Rupperton and his friends, uh, one of them had been cut in several places by flying glass. One ear had been clipped off with surgical neatness, leaving a red hole on the left side of his head. And uh, not a big fan of dismembered ears. That was uh, Buddy Rupperton. It was Buddy Rupperton who's earless. Yeah. Not by choice. So I guess that's not the Van Gogh. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's Van Gogh. Well. <laughs> Boo. Dad joke. Uh, 
I uh, normally limit myself to one yucking it up, but I'm going to go for two because there were just a couple of really gory things in here and uh, I liked them both. The first one was during the initial crash when Christine attacks Buddy Repperton's car. Bobby Stanton was demolished along with it, but he was dimly aware of something hitting his back like a bucket of warm water. It was Bobby Stanton's blood. Ah. The old bucket of warm water routine. King likes that. Uh huh. It was in regulators. It was. And uh, the other one is, its eyes were gone, eaten out of its face by God knew what squirming things. And he could smell it. Oh God, he could smell it. And the smell was like rotting tomatoes. The smell was death. And that was a description of Roland E. LeBay in the front seat. Yeah. The rotting tomatoes. That's what got it on my list here. Yeah. It's a good one. All right. Well, we want to once again thank our patrons for supporting the show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. A reminder that we are probably going to be covering Christine on a future bonus episode. So if you would like to hear our discussion of Christine the movie, visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower and become a patron. And we would like to thank two recent patrons who joined our Patreon. Mike F. and Mindy L., who both joined at the apprentice level. Thanks, Mike and Mindy. We certainly do appreciate it. So, Sean, I believe it is time for some fun stuff. Yes, indeed. We started off talking about Darnell. I've got another one. One of the interesting tidbits about Darnell that we wouldn't have gotten if we didn't have that third person narrator is that Darnell had been morbidly interested in the circumstances surrounding the death of Pope John Paul I 10 weeks before. He had died in bed and been found there in the morning. And I read this right around the same time that I actually read an article about the death of Pope John Paul I. If you remember, he was only Pope for like 30 days. He's like the William Henry Harrison of Popes. Um, and <laughs> there was a book that came out that actually wondered if the Pope had been murdered because it was such a very odd death. And it turns out that there had been people in his room and that there was some cover up and I don't think it was murder. I think it was just that the guy had a lot of stress and he ended up having a heart attack or a stroke or an embolism or something. Um, but he wasn't well and he died. But there were some weirdness that went around about it. And just sort of interesting that Darnell was interested in it. And it one of those moments of synchronicity when I was reading an article about it right around the same time. Pretty cool. What do you have? I'll start with this one. There's a, a moment when Don Vandenberg is reading one of his father's fuckbooks, a deeply incisive and thought-provoking tome titled Swap Around Pammy. <laughs> <laughs> when I read the title of that fuckbook, I thought, boo, this is not a good title. It should have been Pass Around Pammy. Ah. It's just more alliterative. Yeah, yes, I see. Or Swap Around Sammy. Well, that completely changes the uh, nature of the book, no? Yeah, Samantha. All right, I guess. <laughs> Sally? I mean... Swap around Sally works just as well, too. Sure. <laughs> oh, good stuff. I like the fact that Christine, despite not having a driver, still tries to obey the laws of the land. They note that when Christine is going down what might possibly be John F. Kennedy Jr. Drive, that a turn blinker came on. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, that's a nice touch, Christine. Kind of make sure that you indicate which way you're going so that no other drivers around are confused. Yeah. Christine has good driving skills and you know, obeys the law, Always. unless she's in murder mode. Yeah, and then, then goes over the median, 
down alleys. Drives through snowbanks. Yeah, but puts on the turn blinkers. Yeah. So there is a teacher at the school who is very disappointed in Arnie. I believe it's Mr. Slauson who ran the chess club. And there's a description of Mr. Slauson as having faded blue eyes and thick glasses magnified to the size of repulsive boiled eggs. Mm. And uh, while that's a fairly unflattering description of a teacher at your school, it also kind of sounded like King describing himself. Like he's throwing a little shade on, on his Coke bottle glasses and his blue eyes. Bombardier eyes? Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Bombardier's eyes. Permanently squinted against the sun. Repulsive boiled eggs. You could have put that into yucking it up. <laughs> uh, Jimmy is the other helper that Darnell has at his shop. And at one point he says, that's a big 10-4, good buddy. And if that's not like a, a, a way to date yourself into the 70s, I don't know what is that, that CB lingo. I've been teaching my daughter about 10-4, good buddy, when we play card games and a 10 and a 4 comes up and she thinks it's hilarious, even though she has no idea what it means. Hmm. When I was a kid, there was also a game called 10-4, good buddy, and you moved, you moved trucks around a board. Uh. There was cop cars that could pull you over or helicopters that would check on your speed. So 10-4, good buddy. No one remembers that game but me for some reason. You should watch this documentary on CB. It's called Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, yeah. That, that way... You know, I could learn more about... Yeah, CB lingo. Hmm. I, I heard there was a sequel to that documentary, but I will avoid that like the plague. <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. Uh, my last one is that there's this moment that Arnie has this vision, and he had dreamed that Christine had been reduced in scale to a tiny 58 Plymouth, no longer than a man's hand. It was on a slot car track surrounded by HO scale scenery. And it's this nice little vision of, you know, Christine and riding around Libertyville and blah, blah, blah. But what's interesting is that I've actually seen at Hobby Lobby a Christine slot car that you could buy and put on your slot car racer. Oh, wow. So this has actually become real. I don't know that many people still doing slot cars, but if you do, you could have a Christine version. I don't have any other fun stuff. Nope. This section was heavy on death and light on fun stuff. Yeah. I mean, aside from all of the wonderful times I had reading about Buddy Repperton and his friends getting massacred. Good times. Good times. <laughs> Maybe you have something fun in other worlds than these. Yeah. I recently started watching Billions, the TV series that originally started airing on Showtime. And the first few seasons of it are available with Amazon Prime. And it's a really fun show. It's surprising me how, how much I like it. Mm. It's a series that stars Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis. And they play characters who are basically fighting against each other. Damian Lewis plays a billionaire hedge fund guy. Paul Giamatti plays the federal attorney in New York. And the attorney's office is very suspicious that the hedge fund is a little crooked. And so they're always going against each other. But the hedge fund guys have so much money that they have enough power to fight the law. And mm -hmm. the law has a lot of power and hence the drama for the show. And it's really well done, really well acted, really well written, just jam-packed with great actors. And I was pleasantly surprised all over again 
in like the fifth or sixth episode of the first season, one of the characters quotes not only Stephen King, but the gunslinger. Whoa, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. There was a scene when one of the lawyers is interrogating uh, one of the hedge fund guys. And so the hedge fund guy says, the price of any betrayal always comes due in flesh. Mm. The lawyer says, what is that, Shakespeare? And he says, no, Stephen King, the gunslinger. And I'm like, oh, what? what? <laughs> nice. The people who created this show like the gunslinger enough to have a character quote it. This is fantastic. So as soon as that happened, I, I knew I had to bring that into my other worlds than these. Very good. They have not forgotten the face of their father, for sure. They have not. How about you? What are your, or what have you been consuming in your other worlds than these? So I haven't been consuming much lately, but what's on my mind is the graphic novel Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Mm, I can guess why. Yeah, you, I, you can guess why. Yes. Uh, so there's been a lot of talk of banning of books. Uh, there's actually been talk of banning of books in our high school library. Not Mouse, but a couple other graphic novels and books. But Mouse is about the Holocaust. Art Spiegelman wrote a book about his father who survived the Holocaust and the Jewish people are portrayed as mice and the Nazis are portrayed as cats. It's a very well done, if not disturbing book, but obviously you should read it. But I wanted to bring it up in terms of this show because I encountered the Stephen King quote today about banning books. And this is Stephen King and he said, when books are run out of school classrooms and libraries, I'm never much disturbed. Not as a citizen, not as a writer, not even as a school teacher, which I used to be. What I tell kids is don't get mad, get even. Don't spend time waving signs or carrying petitions around the neighborhood. Instead, run, don't walk to the nearest non-school library or the local bookstore and get whatever it was that they banned. Read whatever they're trying to keep out of your eyes and your brain because that's exactly what you need to know. Mm -hmm. And I can wholeheartedly support that. So uh, whether it be Mouse by Art Spiegelman or any of the other books that are being um, looked at, there's a reason that people want them banned, and you should probably go find out what that is and uh, go pick up those books. And King would know because I'm sure many of his books have been taken off the shelves at many times. I think we talked about it even when it came to Christine. So um, don't get mad. Go read those books. I'm sure you'll find out something that is important to know. Yeah, I saw a little bit of the controversy and people were talking about the Streisand effect. Yep. If you make a fuss about a certain book, it's just going to make more people want to read it, which is the opposite effect of what the people who want to ban the book want. Yep. Guess what? It's sold out on Amazon right now. Of course it is. And that's great. <laughs> yep. That's wonderful news. Yep. So if you haven't read it, read it. And uh, that's all I will say about that. And so that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Christine, chapters 43 to 47. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening.
Isn't the Green Mile like three hours long too? It's like two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, that's basically three hours. It's basically three hours. Let me turn off my heater. Give him the heater. The hell with the fastball. Give him the heater. And we would like to thank... Tank. Tanks, everyone. Thanks for the memories.